Hello, and welcome to the Development Debrief with Katherine Van Sickle, the stories-based podcast that interviews donors, thought leaders, and professionals in the field of fundraising. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode. Apologies for the slightly sick nature of my voice. I am working to get over something, but nothing could stop me from posting this week's episode featuring Eric Almonte from Princeton University. Eric and I talk about reunion and annual giving, portfolio optimization, engaging the next generation of donors, and what to say when people ask you why a wealthy institution needs their support. Ultimately, the team at Princeton is building what they call a true partnership. Eric R. Almonte serves as Assistant Vice President for Capital Giving at Princeton University. In this role, he supervises an extremely dedicated and professional staff, including three frontline fundraising teams and the support staff for leadership gifts, international development, and the Office of Gift Planning. The Capital Giving Team focuses on fundraising to increase access and affordability opportunities, endowed professorships, and research funding to intensify innovation, curiosity, and intellectual risk-taking at Princeton University. Prior to this role, he was the Associate Vice President of Major Gifts at St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and Assistant Vice President of Major Gifts at Drexel University, also in Philadelphia, and he served as Manager Voyager Select at the Vanguard Group in Malvern, Pennsylvania, working with high net worth clients. Eric earned his Juris Doctor at the University of Buffalo Law School in Buffalo, New York, where he also earned his undergraduate degrees in Sociology and African American Studies and was a member of the university football team. Eric is a first-generation Dominican-American who was born in Brooklyn, New York. He lives in Ardmore, Pennsylvania with his wife, Michelle, daughter, Sophia, and son, Eric. Now let's get started. Hey, listeners. It's Keith from Evertrue. Evertrue is the end-to-end solution for insight, outreach, and analytics for higher ed advancement and stewardship teams around the world. Recently, we launched Evertrue Studios, Advancement's very first media hub, where subscribers have access to over 100 hours of free, on-demand, original series and podcasts, all created with fundraisers in mind. We're thrilled to feature the development debrief on Evertrue Studios Podcast Network. Check us out at evertrue.com backslash studios. Hi, Eric. Welcome to The Debrief. Hey, good morning, Catherine. How are you? Good. I am especially excited for today because you work at Princeton, which is the town that I grew up in. So I have a real soft spot for the university and the town, and I can't wait to hear what's going on on campus. This is just a great place, so not surprised that you have a soft spot for Princeton. In high school and growing up, I spent time with a lot of professors, children, and actually, even though I went to a public high school, a lot of my classmates ended up going to Princeton University. And there's just such a respect. And yet there's also an impression that it's such a wealthy place. Why would you ever give there? And so we're going to talk about that a little bit in the beginning. You're smiling. Absolutely. Yeah, we we hear a lot of that from our alumni, but first, again, thank you for the invitation today and um, you know, look forward to having this conversation. And I also just want to give a, a quick shout out to our you know, Princeton University advancement team. I'm, I'm fortunate to work with some gifted professionals, especially those on my team for capital giving, both from the front line you know, to the administrative staff that really support the work that we do. But 
Yeah, I, I, awesome. I think with the institution and with our donor base, you, you hear a lot about how well resourced we are. Mm-hmm. And that is no lie. Um, so we're, we're pretty fortunate. But, you, you know, as you and I have spoken before and what I mentioned to you, yes, we're well resourced, but I think we're still worthy of people's philanthropy because I think we've, we've demonstrated over the years that we're real good stewards of people's generosity. And, um, you know, I think we've been able to do some tremendous things, both on uh, increasing financial aid to support our college access initiatives to how we've revitalized spaces on campus to enhance both the teaching and learning. And, and, and I think as a result, Yes, there are probably other institutions and other nonprofits that could could benefit. I still believe that we are good partners for folks to uh, to support. Let's talk about your areas. You manage some really critical teams within the Princeton Advancement plan giving, international giving, and capital and major giving. So I'm sure you're hearing a lot of those frontline reactions. What brought you to this role? I was at St. Joseph's University, um, so shout out to to St. Joe's and, and the Hawks, and had a really good opportunity there. I, I worked, you know, with a gentleman by the name of Joe Kendra, who's great uh, vice president. Learned a great deal from working uh, with him, but I had heard about you know this opportunity through a, a recruiter, and uh, it sort of matched what I was doing at, at St. Joseph's. But the opportunity to uh, grow professionally and, and sort of challenge myself appealed to me. At the same time, just sort of hearing what we were tasked with fundraising for, uh, for, which was scholarships and financial aid. That's sort of our our focus with the capital giving team. It aligned with my values. I'm a first-generation student. I grew up in New York City. My parents immigrated to this country from the Dominican Republic, and they really supported education. And so to be able to do that, for others and, and be able to do that at, at Princeton University, I, I just saw it as, a, as almost like a calling. And so that um, was one of the reasons why I um, took this opportunity. And what were you most surprised by in coming to an institution, to use your words, that is probably better resourced, but also so different culturally? What have been your reactions? Oh, I've been most impressed with our annual giving. You know, working out of the other institutions, you know, you get excited when you hit the 12, 15% mark for annual giving participation. And here, our alumni are so committed to our mission and the things that we're trying to accomplish that, you know, they almost like knock each other over to try to make a gift, <laughs> um, especially, you know, towards the, the end of the, uh, the fiscal year. Our participation rate is about 50%. And that's just remarkable because what we look at it is it's sort of like a vote of confidence towards the work that the institution is doing. So irrespective of the dollar amount, the way our alumni commit towards that gift um, just tells us that they, you know, endorse the work, you know, not only the president, but our faculty and staff and, and how we're really trying to, you know, set our students up for success. And so that was just something that when I heard the numbers, it was just staggering and what we raise each year. But what that allows us to do, I mean, that gives us the flexibility. You know, during the pandemic, we were one of the safest places, you know, not only probably in, this, in the country, but probably in the world because we were testing two, three times a week. That enabled us to really keep the place safe, keep our students safe, keep our, our faculty safe. 
what allowed us to do that was that unrestricted giving, that that AG giving that um, really kind of fuels this place. So that that was um, something that uh, really surprised me. And as you know, living in the air, and I'm sure we'll probably talk about later, uh, reunions. Yes. Reunions I'm sure you probably crashed one or two while you were in high school. <laughs> wow. How did you know? <laughs> just start hearing about you know the high school students how they find a way to to make it to reunions yes well that 50 percent number is really amazing and where i work at chapin we also have very high numbers in participation and what that means is that we're often starting the conversation about major giving with the annual fund and calling to thank for that gift and ask them if we can further that conversation. So I'm curious to know, and you might not know these stats off the top, but how many of the people that you do work with in capital, or in other words, major giving, are also annual fund donors? Yeah, I don't I, I don't know the statistics, but I, I will tell you that they're really high. You know, one of the things that we do here that I, I really appreciate is we we collaborate. So we do have a dedicated annual giving team. We collaborate. We there's a thing we call speed dating. So for assigned prospects, we'll we'll meet with them and we will sort of strategize around philanthropy conversations. As you know from being in the area, you know the, the focus here is definitely around reunions in particular. And so, when when it when your reunion is is up, so for this year we're focused on those that are the threes and eights. And so we will strategize with them, probably a model that you all use, and and we'll talk. So important. So here, you know, unlike other institutions that I've worked at, you can make a restricted gift, and that counts towards your giving. Here, that has nothing to do with your unrestricted yep. gift. That's how we are. <laughs> yep. And, and so, yeah, so we, we, we have that, that approach. And so, and sometimes we have to, you know, a person may think about pledging out a major gift and we'll have to go back to them and say, thank you so much for doing this. Do you want to share with you that your class is going to expect you to also make a gift and that, you know, although you've endowed a scholarship at X amount of dollars, that is not going to count towards your annual giving participation. Mm -hmm. Some already know that. Some, you know, just takes a little bit of education, but it's typically a seamless conversation. And odds are that if they're in a reunion cycle, their classmates probably already reached out to them before we've yeah. gotten to them, which makes the conversation a lot easier. So to go back to where we opened up with why is Princeton a good investment? Yes, probably a good number of people know that dual ask and they're sophisticated philanthropists. But for people who are listening, who maybe are struggling with that dual ask, how do you respond when someone says, well, wait a minute, I just made a six figure commitment. Why do you need more? What, what are some yeah, tips for people on that? So typically what we what we talk about is the importance of annual giving and the difference between a restricted gift and an unrestricted gift, right? And so the, the restricted gift is going to go specifically towards that scholarship or that program that you've decided to fund. The unrestricted giving allows the university to be nimble when they need to be nimble, allows the institution to make hard decisions. I love using us, that word nimble. I think, I, I think it's so important, great. right? I mean, yeah. if there's if there's anything that I think we've learned from the pandemic is that there's so much uncertainty, right? Like that word that we <laughs> we overuse during, yeah. during the pandemic. But our annual giving gave us the flexibility to 
do the testing. It gave us the flexibility. You know, there were so many students that were stranded on campus that we needed to be able to give them the resources, uh, you know, to, to go home. And I know from other institutions, because I wasn't here at the time, but that's a difficult decision. And so I think that the annual giving piece is important and it's vital for the institution to be able to make those crucial decisions. And that's why I think you, you have to think about that. And again, we, we try to educate our donors on both and, and the importance and how to structure, you know, for lack of a better term, their payments and, and, yeah. and, and their gifts so that they're able to accomplish both. Because I, I think it's important to be able to, to have that conversation as gift officers. Definitely. Reputational risk is becoming more and more of a conversation, especially at institutions like Princeton. What is Princeton's policy on gifts that maybe you can't accept? Have you ever walked away from a gift? We have, you know, more times than not, you know, reputational risk is so important to us because the brand is important. We have instances where the donor would like to accomplish one thing, but what they are looking to accomplish may not be sustainable at the institution. And so we would rather walk away from that gift than accept it. And then a few years down the line, have the donor be upset and say, you promised me X and, and you have not delivered. And so there are instances where it's just in our best interest to say, you know, we're probably not a really good candidate for this gift because we are well-resourced. It is a lot easier for us to make that decision. Right. But I think it's also the right decision. Like we can't, and it's not right for us to take every dollar. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just not, it's not, it's not fair. Reputationally, it's not good because if we have an upset donor, upset benefactor, you know, the repercussions of that could really harm the institution's reputation, and it may make it harder for us to secure other commitments down the line. I mean, what we, we're looking for is that true partnership. So at the end of the day, as a colleague shared with me one time, this is when the fun starts, right? When they make that first gift, they're so excited. They're so enamored with the institution. Yeah. We do such a good job with stewarding them that now we're talking about the next gift, mm -hmm. right? And so, yeah. but we, we can't do that if we haven't done the first gift right. And, and if we're just in it for the sake of just increasing, you know, the dollars in the door, that, that's not what's in the best interest for the institution or, or, or the donor. So what I'm hearing you say is it's not uncommon for people to give more than one major gift over the arc yes. of their, yeah. But that's, and I think that's, uh, I think a testament to, I think the good work that my colleagues do here. And, and I think us putting the donor ahead um, mm -hmm. and really having deep conversations about, you know, what they're trying to accomplish and, and how we can work with them. And when we can't, I think we have to be candid there as well and say, you know, we're probably not the institution and, and uh, or maybe let's look at something else and, and then see if we can find alignment there. We've talked about a strong culture of giving. We've talked about incredible loyalty that Princeton has fostered for decades. What is your biggest challenge? I think our biggest challenge is how do we continue to engage the younger populations of alumni, younger classes that may not have the same connection to the institution. Now, you mentioned your relationship and the work that you do, you know, where, where you work and that sort of uh, independent school, sort of like prep school model, that Princeton, that's the old Princeton, right? Like our generations of, of older alumni, that's sort of like the way that they knew there was an expectation 
to give back. There was a strong ethos around, around giving and philanthropy, about volunteerism, right? This generation, sort of the way that they look at things, and I think the conversations that we have in, around engagement is, they have no problem going to GoFundMe and sending a check because they see that as a worthy cause, not so much their institution while they're they're appreciative, but they're like, you all don't need it as much as you know the local soup kitchen down the block. And so again, we have to have conversations and do a better job of educating the younger classes and younger alumni in terms of why, as I mentioned earlier, I think what keeps us up as professionals is how do we continue to grow our pipeline? How do we continue to increase engagement and participation? A lot of that has changed too, you know, after the pandemic. And I think what we try to remind ourselves is, you know, the context of how we engage with our alumni, donors, and benefactors has changed. Prior to the pandemic, we didn't have Zoom. And so we've been able to invite more people to join us virtually. And I think we've leveraged that. But I think we still have to pay attention to participation rates that have been dipping. And, but I think we've been having really good, intelligent conversations and developing strategies to, uh, to address some of those concerns. Are the younger alumni classes buying into the volunteer model? They are, I, you know, and, and I think what I mentioned before, you know, that that volunteerism, it used to be that it had to had to happen on campus. They had to come right. to campus to experience right. it. And what we've we've had to sort of do is pivot and say, you know, in January when there's potential for you know six inches of snow, we probably don't need you to have to come all the way to Princeton, New Jersey, to to engage. We could actually have you do some outreach and solicitation of your classmates virtually, or we could have you do it from your region and have other volunteers host from New York City or from Houston. I think the, the old model was everything had to happen on camp. What we've been learning is, again, the context of how we do it has changed, and, and but, the, but the work doesn't volunteer yeah. and the engagement. Yeah. And in fact, in some ways, I, we believe that it's it's actually enriching the conversations that, that our donors are doing because they're, they're also doing it on social media, mm -hmm. right? And, and we see engagement increasing there. And, and so, yeah, we I think we've learned a great deal the last couple of years and we're going to try to deploy those resources. And we think that that's going to be an effective way to continue to, to engage our younger populations. It's so important to follow the technology, even when you are working at an old institution, continuing to evolve. And so I'm glad to hear that. And I want to talk more about some of the new initiatives that you're working on as a team. You had told me a bit about your ethos on portfolio management that I was really excited about. So maybe you can share the way you guide your team to work through their portfolios. Absolutely. Um, our structure here is, and I probably have to mention, I think a gentleman by the name of Dave Lively, who I think has a methodology that, or a book, the, the the Contrarian Guide to Fundraising. I think that's, that's right. what it's called. It's on so, my desk. <laughs> you know, so we preach sort of smaller, uh, more tiered portfolios. We have an initiative here called Portfolio Optimization, where we try to get more senior gift officers to have the the higher rated prospects and so you know a senior portfolio manager you know will have better prospects 
an associate will have you know, really good prospects and then assistant is probably going to have a larger pool, but do more discovery work. And so the way that we tier it is through our operating plans, which um, we sort of segment into three buckets, our top 25, our focus 50, and then we have our like 50 qualifiers. So, so all in, you know, what we're looking to, um, to have is, is about 125 prospects, but um, segmenting them and tiering them allows us to spend more time with not only our better rated prospects, but the prospects that we believe from a readiness standpoint are looking to make your gift a, a lot sooner. We really emphasize spending time with that top 25, but really still paying attention to the, the focus 50. Those are the people that, hey, they may be in the middle of a pledge, or they may be prospects that with a little bit more time and attention, we'll probably make a gift in 18 to 24 months. But from a pure sort of like pipeline development, the qualifiers, those are people that we have to get to know. That's that's like the pot of gold that we know it's there, but we just got to spend time, you know, sort of, uh, you know, toiling soil. And, 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 and so when we go out to our regions, our anchor visits are going to be our top 25s. Mm-hmm. We're also going to pay attention to- You plan the- a trip around those. Right. Those those are the the anchor visits is because we believe that's the that's the the person that's probably going to be making the the next gift or the next few Mm -hmm. gifts. And so we really want to make sure that you know we have X amount of resources. And so we still have to be a good steward of university resources. And so I I just can't have people traveling around the you know the country of the world just because you know they they got a visit. We we have to be real intentional in terms of who we need to see. And so the anchors are the ones that set up the visits. Then we and then we really try to fill out that visit with focus 50 and our qualifiers. We really emphasize going after qualifiers. And it's also important to disqualify folks. Mm-hmm. I mean they're in your pool, but we need to determine whether or not there's alignment between our philanthropic priorities and their vision in terms of how they they see themselves partnering with Princeton. So that's sort of how we structure our operating plans and portfolios. We have a really strong partnership with uh, our prospect management and, and research team. I uh, When I interviewed, I had shared that they are the Jarvis to our Ironman. And so they tell us where we need to be. Yeah. Um, it worked out because I got the job, but I mean, I say that in jest, but what's really good about working with prospect research and, and management and, and that sort of, it's they help us interpret the data and allow our teams to make more informed decisions around the pools and 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 who we need to see, who we haven't spent time with that we need to spend time with. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so that relationship is so, is so important to us. I think that's why we've been able to really grow the program. Is mm-hmm. because we, we emphasize that they meet um, individually with um, with the front line and they'll do a monthly review, uh, make sure proposals are up to date, uh, make sure our stage aging is, is, is current. And then where we need to either disqualify um, or move people out, they'll help do that as well so that our, our portfolios aren't, aren't getting stale. I think this is so great for people to hear it, it. What you're talking about is what I believe truly is best practice. But I do want to clarify, you talk about top 25 and that those are basically people that you plan to ask for a gift in that fiscal year. But Correct. 
that does not mean they're the top 25 rated. No, I think no, that's that, it's not. It's, and, it, and we really try to empower the front line to determine who within their prospect pool is ready to, to make a gift. Mm -hmm. um, so they're, they're not necessarily the best rated for the institution. Again, we, through our, our portfolio optimization, um, we, we call it pot or portfolio optimization project. Our more senior frontline officers will have the better rated prospects. Was that developed by them? Or if you hire someone more senior, you are giving them a quote unquote better portfolio? If we're hiring you at a more senior role, you're going to receive a, a, a better portfolio. Yeah. And you'll have a smaller portfolio as a, so we say on average that a, like a senior associate's probably going to have anywhere from 75 to hundred prospects because they'll have some managerial responsibilities. An associate director is probably going to have 125 or so. And mm -hmm. then if you're an ass assistant, you'll probably have no more than 200, even though we're, you know, but really that, that role is really trying to qualify, disqualify, doing a little bit more discovery work. Yeah. But the top 25 are people that, yes, the gift officer has identified that they believe from their last few visits or um, from, you know, previous conversations that, that this individual is ready to probably make a gift within the next six to 12 months. Yeah. And so it, it allows us to, to predict where, mm -hmm. where we are with our programs. And, uh, you know, fortunately, you know, that methodology has, has been helpful and, and uh, allowed us to, to really grow our programs because I think we're, we're pretty methodical in, in our outreach. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'm excited for people to hear that. Tell us about Venture Forward. This is a really exciting new initiative at Princeton. Yeah, so, the, so Venture Forward is our, our campaign that launched October 1st of 2021. So that's, you know, the sort of a public phase of, of, of the campaign. You know, the, the, I think the tagline is Venture Forward from the present to the possible. It, it supports our, our strategic plan. I mentioned before, you know, access and affordability and financial aid are, are so important. Our, when our president, I think he arrived in, in 2016, prior to that, he was our provost. One of the things that he wanted to do was increase access. And so what we've done is we've increased the number of students that are admitted to Princeton. And so what we so we're a year one of a five-year plan to grow the school by about 500 students. You know the challenge with with Princeton, and I'm sure a lot of number of institutions is we we deny admission to more students than I think we we want to. It is it is mm -hmm. extremely difficult to get um, admitted, and uh, but if you were to look at the classes that we admit, you could probably double the size of the class, and there will not be a drop off in quality. And so. When you receive a Princeton education, like many other institutions, again, and I, I'm a first-generation student or you know a former student, it is a game changer for you. And and if we could increase opportunities for for more families, especially more first-generation and lower-income families, we think that we are going to be able to uh, transform not only uh, the country but but the world. And so, access and affordability is is one of our uh, strategic imperatives. Growing our data science and engineering, bioengineering programs. While we are primarily a liberal arts institution, we have a amazing school of engineering that, that we think we can continue to grow and, and it's going to help us uh, respond to some of the, the bigger challenges of the world. And so um, that's a point of emphasis for this campaign, as well as sustainability and the environment. You know, we know the place that we have here in society and if we could lead 
on some of those sustainability issues, um, then I think that that is going to also help the world. And so those are probably some of the bigger buckets that, you know, mm-hmm. we are, are fundraising for uh, as it relates to, to Venture Forward. Didn't you have a match program for the financial aid fundraising? We did. And, you know, just super excited and really shout out to the capital giving team as well as our my, my colleagues in uh, Principal Gifts. So we launched this match program called Venture Forward Scholarship and Fellowship fellowship match. And what the university did, and we didn't really advertise it. It was really sort of word of mouth when we would meet with our prospects is the university would match 50 cents on every dollar for any scholarship, any unrestricted scholarship or fellowship starting at $250,000 up to $4 million. And so if you, you know, if you created a $250,000 scholarship, we added another $125,000. And so we were able to increase the impact on your scholarship. So we started, we launched that March, 2022. And um, we actually just wrapped it up this December. We were allotted about- quick, less than a year. Yeah, things moved quickly. And the funds from the university, was that from the endowment? It was from the endowment. It was was from the endowment. And so we were adding our endowment dollars, but the impact, so an individual that would create a scholarship, we would add uh, university dollars to it. And that's why it was important for it to be uh, an unrestricted scholarship. So you couldn't have a restricted scholarship that went to, you know, engineering. It had to be unrestricted, allow the university the flexibility because we were commingling university dollars. We were approved, like I said, about uh, $40 million uh, that they would use for match. And we actually had to ask for a little more. We, we actually wrapped up December 31st, just north of $42 million. But the great thing there is, you know, there were 16 people that were able to start new scholarships. And we were just so happy that they were interested in, in, in partnering with the institution. We were able to raise some individual sites because they saw the, the importance of co-investing with, with the institution and, and partnering That's with that. us on what was, it's probably our number one uh, strategic priority around the campaign, which was, like I said before, access and affordability and, and, and financial aid. There were a good number of others that were able to add to their existing scholarships. Who knows? Maybe we'll we'll get approved to, to roll this out you know, for the next campaign. Well, another term you just used that I really love is co-investment. I think anytime you give a gift to an institution, you are investing in it. But the idea of investing with it is very compelling. And it sounds like that did resonate with people. Yes. You know, what was really interesting when we were having these conversations was really hearing the confidence that they had in us and really coming together and being thought partners with them around their philanthropy. That was so cool. Right? So we're having conversations and we're deepening our understanding of what they're looking to accomplish and then sharing how it aligns with our needs and hey, this is the what we see as a really strong strategic goal for the institution. It allowed us to become more like philanthropic advisors around mm-hmm. the things that they were trying to accomplish and how it would come back to support the, the institution. And, and that's ultimately, I think, when we can do that and become thought partners and just like share, like, this is what the president's looking for. This is where he needs your, your help. And there were instances where there was no alignment and, you know, especially around venture forward, but we also uh, were able to really come together. I'm so proud of our, of our team and, and uh, even more proud 
of how our our donor base uh, reacted to this initiative. Because yeah. to be honest with you, we weren't sure. <laughs> Right. We hedged a little bit. The The support was, was overwhelming. Well, you talked about old Princeton and that prep school culture and for lack of a better word, you know, old money, generational wealth. This speaks to, it, feel, it sounds to me like it really does speak to newer generation of wealth and a newer viewpoint, like with startup culture and, you know, venture philanthropy. And I'm just curious if you found that first generation or second generation college students were stepping up as donors in a new way. If you have any stories. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there, there were definitely younger alumni that to be honest with you, 250 was a stretch, Mm -hmm. but this is their way to co-invest to say, we believe in what you're doing because I was a product of that. Mm -hmm. Right. University revitalized its financial aid program in 2001. It actually re-evaluated it and made some enhancements earlier this year. But this was one where you're right. There is, especially in Silicon Valley and and with our you know younger and more entrepreneurial students, that sort of like ethos around co-investing and they want to see proof of concept. And when I mentioned before that you know that's the difference between I think the older generation, I think the younger. The older generation, stronger ethos around it because that's sort of the culture that they were raised under. Mm-hmm. This group is more like, I want to roll up my sleeves and I want to be immersed in it. And how do you get immersed in a scholarship? Well, you co-invest with the institution. We partner together and um, we look at ways that we could try to solve some of our bigger challenges. And this was this was a really good example of that. This was a really good example of how our alumni and other benefactors really stepped up. Thinking about new donors stretching for that 250 just gives me goosebumps. I feel like that's what it's all about. And we're, and you could see it, you know, some of them, you know, when we would have the conversations, I'd, you know, I'd hear from my team and, and they would say, I need a little bit more time. You know, they, they're going to talk to their spouse a little bit more about this, but they're really committed that this is, this really resonates with that. Yeah. And, and again, a lot of them, yeah, they, you know, they were first generation and sort of, they see the power of a Princeton education, they see this as an opportunity to establish or maybe, you know, further their, their legacy with the institution. And, and again, and then an in some cases they'll realize I could do that, that it felt like it was going to hurt, but actually I yeah. could do that 250 and yeah. That's yeah. Right. So that's that's right. amazing. Reunions. I want to end with, I would be remiss to not talk about reunions, pretend that the people listening have no idea what it is at all. How would you explain in a short clip what reunion yeah. was like at Princeton? So I, I when I arrived, uh, all I kept hearing about was reunion, reunion, reunion. We had 25,000 people show up for reunion weekend. So one of the culminating events is the P raid, which is this big parade around campus. The procession starts with the oldest living alumnus, most likely in a cart, uh, you know, getting uh, yep. processed through the campus. And then each subsequent class will follow. And it's almost like a snake sort of like eating itself at the end. And then <laughs> the most recent class, yeah, I don't know if that will, will translate well, but the most recent class of graduates that just graduated the, the past week, they're the last group to process and they, it's almost like they're being in, invited, included into the alumni community by all the other classes. They wear these amazing jackets that it's the, their 25th reunion. 
is sort of like the big one that they really come back and then the 50th reunion they get these these class jackets that are you know pretty cool uh when you, and when everyone's you in orange and black everyone right? i mean it's, listen, i mean if you were to cut some people they would bleed orange and black <laughs> um, and then the weekend you know there there are these different tents that are set up around campus which each reunion class again fives and eights for, for this year, but every, you know, every five-year uh, cycle, they, they have these tents set up and they, they throw these like amazing parties. Uh, my wife and I had the pleasure of joining it and she was like, are we going again this year? Uh, and I'm like, <laughs> let me see. Because uh, yeah. I don't know. We crashed a couple of the, the class parts, but it is, uh, we just have a Bid, a maniacal alumni base, and it's what makes us who we are. I mean, I have colleagues from other institutions that know about reunions, and are you know, and I, I'm like, stop by. I can't. I mean, I can't describe. It's, uh, the, yeah, it's the hard love to and explain. Yeah, just people on the street. It, it's almost like like a, a music big love festival. fest. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Like, so, so what I heard, and, and and you may know this better than I did. Like before I got here, I had a colleague say to me, "Listen," he goes, "Next to the Kentucky Derby." And the Daytona 500, we are the biggest consumers <laughs> of beer. <laughs> for a week. I've never heard that. And so I'm like, yeah, probably. You know, when I walked around, yeah. Uh, but people, but, I mean, the just town shuts down. I mean, the stores are open, but like the stores, university just, completely spills into the town. Orange and black, no yeah. hotels. The, the last cool thing I'll say about it, which I really think this is where Princeton, one of the areas where, where, where Princeton nailed it, is people get to stay in their dormitory. And I think that there's something special about that. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, some of my best experiences were were with my classmates, um, not in the classroom, but back in the dorms and and for them to be able to get to spend their weekends. And these are older established, right? Like they could stay at a nice hotel, but that's not what they want to do. They (laughs) they want to relive their, you know, their, their college years. I just think that that's magical. And I'm I'm just proud of the fact that we're able to to do that uh, with, with our alumni. This has been so great, Eric. Thank you for sharing some of the fun, sort of quirky things about Princeton, but then also things that I think others can really apply to their own work. I would love to end with my signature question, which is what do you know for sure? What I know for sure is hard work beats talent when talent does not work hard. I think for this profession, um, you know, those that are successful are really committed to it um, and work really diligently and disciplined around um, outreach and getting to know their prospects and and, uh, and developing meaningful relationships with their prospects. I mean, there, you know, there's no substitute for, for that. Mm-hmm. There's some really good people out there, but if they don't put the work in, they're not going to be successful in this profession. That's what I know. So great to have you, Eric. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Catherine. If you can't tell from the way I talk with Eric on this episode, I really believe that Princeton is such a special place, and I've always been curious to know more about what Princeton University is doing with their fundraising. After this week, we really have a good sense of what they're doing, and I hope that some of you take ideas either from the portfolio optimization or ways in which to talk to donors about dual ask gifts and different kinds of investments wherever you're working. If you're new to the podcast, thank you for finding us and feel free to check out older episodes. Please be in touch on Instagram at Dev Debrief and connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for stopping by and I hope you have a wonderful week. I will be delivering more content for you in approximately seven days. 
In the meantime, good luck with all of your goals.